as we get back into our brief study through this passage. We see Paul in Athens. We saw last time we were together, JT led us in a study uh, looking at the very beginning of this as we see Paul, who is really just in a stopover in this city, um, waiting for other brothers to join him there. And yet, as he is there, um, his perception of all that is around him just stirs something in his heart. And so JT reminded us of what this posture, how the gospel should shape our posture towards the world around us. And we see a beautiful picture of it in Paul's life here as um, his spirit is provoked within him. Let's begin reading in verse 16. And this morning we will read through verse 21. And I would like for us to see this morning, or I believe the next thing that we should see here this morning, is not only is Paul's spirit provoked within him based on what he sees about the spiritual condition of the people around him, but that Paul is provoked to action. And in his action, we see a beautiful picture of what I am calling this morning gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. And as we see this picture of gospel fluency in the life of Paul and in this particular episode in Athens, I want us to be challenged this morning. Or my hope is that we will be challenged uh, to see the need for gospel fluency, for us to become fluent in the gospel. And I will go ahead and warn you, I have had a cold and I'm on the tail end of it. And I'm in that period where you're wondering, how long is this cough going to stick around? Anybody with me? Uh, That's the worst aspect, I think, of any cold. (coughs) So I will cough a little bit this morning. I have a cough drop in my mouth. Uh, But here is the truth. The less subdued I become, the more I'm going to cough, which is good news for all of us. Okay, so I'm going to try to um, steward my voice well this morning, and maybe that will help the pace with which I present this this morning. So let's begin in verse 16 there in Acts 17. The word tells us there now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him (coughs) and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time in your word today. Thank you for this picture that we have. Paul is not a perfect individual. Um, He is a sinner saved by grace. Um, But, Lord, we're thankful for the work of your spirit, the radical work of your spirit in his life Um, And we see today a beautiful picture of that, Um, you know, through all of his travels, through all of his missionary journeys, through all of his vast experience in sharing the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of what the spirit does within us to make us gospel people. 
that speak the gospel language. And so, Lord, we're thankful for this picture that we have this morning, not of Paul's perfection, but of his faithfulness to present the gospel in meaningful ways and to go wherever you called him to go to share the truth of the gospel. So, God, I pray that we would see that today, Father, and I pray that uh, indeed we would see our own need for gospel fluency. Help us to understand what that is. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to gain a picture for how to attain it. Thank you for the work that you have already done in the midst of this local church to bring us to become more fluent in the gospel. But, Father, we pray for more. God, would you continue to work in our lives so that we would be able to proclaim the gospel faithfully and meaningfully wherever you send us to proclaim it. So we love you today and we thank you. We thank you for your spirit's help. We thank you. That because the Bible is open before us this morning, we know that you are going to speak to us. So God, help us to have ears to hear and help us to respond by being doers of the word and not just hearers. Thank you for this time we get to share together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. And we saw last time we were together just what that looks like to have a heart for others. To have a desire to see others come to know who Jesus is. To be able to put their faith in Jesus. And the Spirit does a work in us, doesn't He? Because we are not naturally inclined that way. We are naturally inclined to be self-centered. To turn inward upon ourselves and to look at others as obstacles around us. Are we not? Am I the only one like that? We need the work of the Spirit to cultivate within us a softness, a compassion for people around us. That they may know and worship God in Christ Jesus. But we see here, the first thing I want us to see is that Paul does not stop with just emotion. It's not as if he just looks around and he sees the spiritual condition of everyone around him. And he has an emotional response and that's the end of it. He just continues to wait for these brothers that he's waiting for. And I love this tiny word that's given here in verse 17. That is such a loaded word, the word so. That is a word of action. That is a word of purpose. It is a word of result. So what? So what, Paul? So what? You see the reality of the spiritual um, status around you. So what? That you are provoked in your spirit and you are moved with compassion in this way. So what? Well, so he did something. He was provoked to action, not just within his spirit, not just in something that he felt. He was provoked to do something. And that has just been so heavy on me the past couple of weeks as I've thought about this very simple statement, right? That Paul's not even here. This is not even a stop on his missionary journey. This is not scheduled, right? That hits some of us this morning right where we are. Because it's so hard for us to operate off of our schedule, right? This is not scheduled. This was not a place where Paul was going to go. He's just waiting. But his spirit is stirred in such a way that he looks around and he sees the lostness around him. And Paul understands, brothers and sisters, that he is the access to the gospel for the people around him. So, so what? So he began to reason. So he reasoned with them. You see, the emotion that Paul experienced compelled him to action. The emotion that Paul experienced compelled him 
to action. Take your Bible and turn. We're going to be doing quite a bit of flipping this morning. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Well, we're just a few pages to 2 Corinthians 5. Some of you are going to think, man, every time that Jason has spoken over the last four weeks, he goes back to this passage. Does he not know any more verses? Well, I know some more verses, all right, but I keep going back to this one. This is so important for us to hear. This statement in 2 Corinthians 5, (coughs) beginning in verse 14. 5, beginning in verse 14. Look at what Paul says here. For the love of Christ, what? Controls us. I've talked about that word now a couple of different times. I hope that you can tell me what that word interprets to, what that word conveys. I will remind you one more time that when we talk about the love of Christ controlling us, the idea is our being hemmed in by the love of God. That before I come to Christ, I may have a full gamut of reactions that I will have to people that flow out of my flesh. But the more that I grow in maturity into Christ, the more that I am hemmed in by the love of Christ. I no longer respond in the way that I used to. I no longer regard others according to the flesh. Now I see them through the eyes of God. Now I see them through the lens of the Bible. And more and more, I am constrained or compelled or hemmed in by the love of Christ. And this is what Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And here's the operative terms. That one has died for all, therefore, all have what? Died. We cannot be controlled by Christ until we join Christ in his death. When we follow Jesus, it begins with a death on a cross. His love more and more compels me because I have died. Because he has died, all have died. Verse 15, and he died for all. That compels me to go to who? To all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. See, Paul may have just been stopping over here to wait for some brothers to, jo- to join him. But Paul was ready and willing at any moment to scrap his own agenda. It wasn't about Paul's agenda. He was living for the agenda of God. He had given himself over to the agenda and mission of God. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but, here's the contrast, for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there are a couple of keys here. All have died. If you are in Christ this morning, a death has taken place in your life. Or at least it should have. Second key is that those who live might no longer live for themselves. And this changes everything about what compels us. So the question for us that confronts us here is what compels us? What compels us? What compels you? What is it that stirs your hearts? What is it that stirs us to action? We are people of action. We are people who are stirred. We are emotional people. And we are stirred by something. The question is, what is our heart centered upon that moves us to action when our hearts are stirred in that way? For Paul, it was the gospel. 
For Paul, it was beginning to see the whole world, all of history, everything around him through the lens of the reality of the gospel. And so when he is here in this place, although it's not on his agenda, his heart was stirred because of the gospel that showed him the lostness around him and the idolatry around him. And it stirred him to action. You see, Paul's missional intentionality flowed out of who he was. How did he refer to himself all through the New Testament? A bondservant of Christ. A slave of Christ. You see, I used to believe falsely that evangelism was hard. I used to believe falsely that evangelism was hard. Now, some of you are like, no, 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 really, evangelism is hard. No, we are all evangelists. We are all evangelists. We proclaim that which we love. And we do it freely. And we do it despite the cost. All the time. Evangelism is easy for us. We are natural evangelists. We love to talk about what we love. The question is, what do we love? What compels us? And we see a beautiful picture here about how the gospel had gripped Paul's heart in such a way that that is what compelled him. He was compelled by the love of Christ. So we see that he reasoned. Then we begin to see that he reasoned in different contexts. And this is where we begin to see the picture of gospel fluency. There in verse 17, continuing on, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue. This is the first place that he reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. This is where Paul began. We see that Paul takes the gospel to those who are like him. He takes the gospel to those who are like him. This word reasoned is an important word. Yes, there is the idea in that word that there was some arguing going on, some contending going on. But brothers and sisters, here's the truth. As much as he was contending and arguing for what he believed, he was contending and arguing for the people he argued with. It was a both and. You see, Paul's desire wasn't just to win the argument. It wasn't just to win the day. His desire was not to prove himself right, but to see them believe. That's what Paul desired. He truly wanted to see them get it. He was contending for the faith, but also for their souls. He cared deeply about their souls. How do I know that? We'll turn to the book of Romans, beginning in Romans 9. Listen to what Paul writes elsewhere. He's writing specifically about his people, the Jewish people here in Romans 9 and 10. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, listen to what Paul writes. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, why would Paul feel compelled to say that? Why would he feel compelled to set up his statement by saying, I'm not lying, to defend himself, to say, um, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, because what he is about to say is truly astonishing. And we would be prone to say, come on, Paul, you don't mean that. Listen to what he says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And here's the statement in verse 13, for I could wish that I myself were accursed And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
What a statement. That Paul is so grieved over the lostness of the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He is so grieved within his spirit that he would say that I would be gladly accursed and cut off from Christ if it meant the salvation of all, the, all of those people. Brothers, sisters, I don't know if I can make that statement. But it shows us a window into Paul's heart for the Jewish people. He goes on to write, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. He's saying in every single way they should know that Jesus is the Messiah. And in every single way they miss him. And it breaks Paul's heart. Look at verse or chapter 10, Romans 10, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what he writes. It says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Verse 12, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you hear what he says? My hope for them is that they would be saved. That they would be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He notices it. It's almost like his spirit is provoked in a very similar way that we see in Athens. He looks around and he sees the idolatry. He looks around the Jewish landscape and he sees a great zeal for God. But that zeal is working itself out through a works righteousness that he knows will fall short. And it's not submitting to the righteousness of God by putting their faith in Jesus, who is the righteousness of God, so that they may become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? And so Paul is just broken over this. He is broken over the reality of the Jewish people. So let me ask you this. When Paul goes to reason in the synagogue, where does Paul begin? He begins in the Old Testament. He begins in all of these things that he has listed here. He begins with adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. He begins with all of those things. And he is contending with them by trying to argue with them, by helping them to see and understand that all of these things pointed to Jesus and you're missing it. That's the starting place for Paul's gospel proclamation within the synagogue. The first thing I want us to see specifically about evangelism this morning is that evangelism should flow freely out of transformation, not duty. Evangelism should flow freely out of transformation, not duty. Paul was broken over his people's lostness. He wasn't going to the synagogue first out of duty. He wasn't doing any evangelism out of duty. He wasn't going and telling other people about Jesus because he needed to check that box in his life to say that I'm being obedient to this. God has sent me to do it, so I just need to do it. He was broken. And that's the transformation of the spirit within him. That's a work that the spirit has to do within us. And so within Paul and with us, we should see changed purpose in us as the spirit works within us. We should see changed passions. We should see changed perspective. We should see changed priorities. 
And all of this is true about Paul, who is a bondservant of Jesus. And when his spirit is provoked, he goes to his own people to once again contend with them. How many times over and over has Paul done this? It's like beating his head up against the wall. He's facing persecution from his own people. And yet, what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. To once again reason with them, but also contend for them. Evangelism should flow freely out of transformation, not duty. But he doesn't just go to the synagogue. Look, continue to look at verse 17 there with me. It says he reasoned in the synagogue with the devout person, with the Jews. But he also goes to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So not only does Paul take the gospel to those who are like him, Paul takes the gospel to those who are not like him. You see, Paul's spirit was provoked for the whole city, not just for pockets of people that were like him. His spirit was provoked for the whole city. Brothers and sisters, this is a pagan city full of pagan people who are busy with pagan practices. And Paul's spirit is provoked for everyone that is there. So what does Paul do? Well, first... He goes to where the people would be. Where, where would be the people in the middle of the day? They'd be in the marketplace. That's where Paul goes. He goes to the synagogue, but he also goes out into the marketplace to be where the people would be. Secondly, we see in this that he rested in the sovereign providence of God. I love that it says there, with those who happen to be there. Paul doesn't have an agenda. He doesn't know who's going to be there. He's not looking for specific people. He's just going into the marketplace, and he is trusting God that divine appointments will await him there. And whoever is there and whoever is available and whoever responds, he'll have conversations with them. He just trusts in the sovereign providence of God that way. And number three, we see that he reasoned with whomever he could. He took advantage of every opportunity he had because Paul was not there to shop. Paul was not there to barter. He was not there to talk about sports. He was there to share the gospel. That's why he was there. His spirit was provoked. That's what he must do. And so he just rested in God's sovereign providence with opportunities to do just that. This caused me to think of a couple of passages. First, turn back over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is my friend Nikolai's favorite verse, Romans 1.16. Isn't it? I know. Romans 1, listen to verses 16 and 17. Paul writes there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For, here's the grounding for that statement, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everybody look at me just a second. I'm going to do like I do with the students. Everybody look at me. Paul doesn't just write that. Paul believes it. He doesn't just proclaim it. He believes it. He believes the truth and the reality that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if that is the truth, then he will not be ashamed of it. He believes that. And I love this statement, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here are two statements that I can make to you, okay? I believe very much so in the doctrine of election. I believe it. I believe the scriptures teach it. 
But here's the second statement. I am not omniscient. I don't know who will be saved. I don't know that. So for me, I need to join in with Paul in declaring that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so to me, that should compel me to go to all, to everyone and preach the gospel because the gospel is power on, powerful enough to save every single person. Amen. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Sometimes I'm afraid that we are so shaped by cultural pessimism coming from media constantly that we look at certain people and we think that they cannot be saved. Do we believe in the power of the gospel or do we not? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He goes on to write to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Can I ask you this morning, who is your everyone? Who is your everyone? When you hear that statement, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who are the everyone that God has sovereignly placed in your sphere of influence? And just as Paul was the access to the gospel for this pagan culture, brother and sister, you are the access to of the gospel in wherever God has placed you. We are the access because we have it within us. We have the truth. So do we believe that? Do we believe that enough to break through the awkwardness of, of opening up gospel conversations with other people because we believe that this gospel is powerful to save? Do we believe that? Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine. It's a beautiful summary here of Paul's self-evaluation. This is Paul viewing himself. He's sharing a little bit about this radically changed perspective of his own life. It's also a beautiful picture of what freedom in Christ really, truly does look like. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, listen to what Paul writes. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. What an incredible gospel statement. That though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. More important than Paul upholding his own rights to what he felt like he should be able to do, he was willing to sacrifice those and lay them down, rooted in a death that he had already experienced in Christ for the sake of other people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That's freedom in Christ, brothers and sisters. Not any personal freedoms that I would afford for myself. It's the willingness to sacrifice that To give my life to others that they may come to know him. What an incredible statement. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself, uh, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. What is Paul talking about there? We can use the illustration of dietary laws. Paul is free. He can eat whatever he wants. 
right? That's the freedom that we have in Christ. But when Paul was with the Jewish people, he submitted to the dietary laws of the Jewish people because he didn't want to put unnecessarily stumbling blocks to the gospel for the Jewish people. So instead of holding on to his own his own rights and saying, you know what, I'm with you. You can eat however you want to. I'm going to eat what I want. He was willing to lay that down. He was willing to submit in some ways to whatever the customs were. We saw that with the ladies in the picture in Afghanistan. Okay? We don't believe that women must cover their heads at all times, but we willingly did that because we wanted to take the gospel to that culture. You see that? So I'm willing to submit to those cultural norms or, or in some ways participate in them, laying down my own rights for the sake of other people coming to faith. Verse 21, so those outside the law or to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul's saying that when I'm with Gentiles, those outside the law, I'm not going to go so far as to participate in sinful ways and practices, but I will conform to the community up until any violation of Christ so that I may build relationships here wherein I can convey the gospel. To the weak, I became weak, he says, that I might win the weak. And here's the declarative statement. I have become all things to all people. Once again, that is what freedom in Christ looks like. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. The sake of the gospel. This is what compelled him that I may share with them in its Blessings. I was confronted with a situation like this just a couple of weeks ago. Had the opportunity to go to Canada. Had the opportunity while I was there to preach at a church. I was told that this was a predominantly Chinese church. And this particular church had three different services in it. Uh, One was in Mandarin. One was in Cantonese. One was in English. Thankfully, I was preaching the English service. Okay. But... My friend Nate calls me the night before and he was like, Jason, uh, man, I'm, I'm glad I thought about this. I forgot to tell you, um, but the brothers and sisters in this church still very adamantly wear masks. Would you be OK with doing that? Can I tell you that I wasn't thrilled about wearing a mask? Can I be open enough to say that? I could have upheld my right and said, nope, I ain't going to do it. But in that moment, I knew that I'm going into their culture and I want to love these brothers and sisters and I want to be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel. I had no problem taking the mask out of my bag, putting it on, wearing it throughout the service. And I enjoyed incredible gospel fellowship with these brothers and sisters in this church. We meet those situations often where we can hold on to whatever rights we think we're privy to. Or we can lay those down for the sake of the gospel. Paul says he became all things to all people. This doesn't mean that Paul is a chameleon. It doesn't mean that he has no personality. It just meant that he was willing to sacrificially live among whoever he was around for the sake of them knowing the gospel. Here's another truth about evangelism. Evangelism is fueled by a heart that is for God's glory and for all people. For God's glory and for all people. I'm reminded of Peter's designation of us, that we are a kingdom of priests. What was the task of the priests? The priests were to mediate the blessings of God to the people around them in some very stark, sacrificial ways. This is who we are as the people of God. 
That our task as a kingdom of priests is to sacrificially mediate the blessings of God to the world around us. What's the best way that we can do that? By proclaiming the gospel. And we do that in sacrificial ways. We remove unnecessary stumbling blocks so that all may hear meaningfully and be able to respond to it. Not only did he reason in the synagogue and in the marketplace, verse 19 says they took him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this sort of uh, cultural city hub that was there in Athens. And on any given day, you would go there and you would need probably special access to get to the place where Paul went to. But this was the gathering place of all the who's who's uh, in Athens. You had philosophers there. You had poets there. You had authors there. Um, all of the who's who of society come together and, man, they're just talking. We see in the, in the, in the text that what they love to do is they just love to share new stuff. Talk about new stuff. Talk about philosophy. Just ruminate about life. Okay? That's what the Areopagus was. And Paul is taken to the Areopagus. So we see that not only does Paul uh, proclaim the gospel to those who are like him, he proclaims the gospel to those who are not like him, but Paul also takes the gospel through doors that open. Paul did not set out to proclaim the gospel in the Areopagus. In fact, he would have told you, probably laughed at you if you told him you're going to share in the Areopagus. In that moment, he probably said, like, no way, I'm not, I'm not going to be invited there, right? He didn't just go up and knock on the door of the Areopagus and start there either. He didn't say, this is the best place to proclaim to a bunch of people, you're going to let me talk. That's not what he did. It's just through the sharing in the marketplace that he stumbles upon these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they are the ones who were there, sovereignly placed by God. So Paul enters into this gospel dialogue with them. And throughout this dialogue, they say, we need to take you to the Areopagus. And Paul is obedient. He is faithful to follow wherever God leads him. But notice this, brothers and sisters, what draws attention to Paul in the marketplace and the way that he's sharing? What is it that draws attention? It's his faithful gospel proclamation. What is the strange teaching that they notice? What is it that caused them to say that he is a preacher of strange divinities or foreign divinities? It's because Paul is proclaiming what? Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. Here's the truth. Paul went to the synagogue. And he started with the Old Testament law and he reasoned with them to try to help them to see built on their already storehouse of knowledge of the scriptures to help them to see that they had missed the Messiah. He didn't start in the Old Testament in the marketplace. OK, they had no concept of the Old Testament. They had no concept of the law. Paul did not start there. He did not use that as the context in which he would preach the gospel. He met the people where they were. But notice this in both contexts. It went to the same place. Jesus in the resurrection. Jesus in the resurrection. What stood out to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers was not Paul's boisterousness. It wasn't his, it wasn't his agitation. It was the teaching. That's what drew the attention to him. You see, Paul sought to meet the people with the gospel right where they were. He was willing to go to them, even into the Areopagus. Listen again to what Paul wrote in a couple of places. Turn over to Colossians 1. Sorry, that's not Colossians 1. Hold on just a second. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, or yeah, 2 through 6. I knew that wasn't 1. 
<coughs> Listen to Paul's request here of the Colossian church. Colossians 4. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Can I say once again that this is not just something that Paul writes. This is something that Paul means. He meant this. He meant for his brothers and sisters to pray for him in this way. And what are what are his requests? At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Verse four, that I may make make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul understood that at any moment God was going to lead him into a sovereign, divine appointment in which he could proclaim the gospel, even when he's in prison. Even when he's in prison, his prayer doesn't change to say, hey, all those who are outside of prison, continue to pray for them that God may open a door to them. Paul looks at his situation. He trusts in a sovereign God and he says, pray that doors would open for gospel proclamation wherever we are. He wanted brothers and sisters to pray this. His heart was to take the gospel. Pray for me that these opportunities would open to me. And then what does he say? That I may make it clear. That when I do, when I, when I do have the opportunity to proclaim it, that it would be clear that I would know how I ought to speak to each person in proclaiming the gospel to them. And then his prayer turns into an exhortation here. Listen to what it says. Verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time that right there are two incredibly helpful exhortations for us. Hey, if you want a standard for who we as the people of God ought to be on social media, right there. That we should be people of wisdom and we should be uh, making the best use of our time. In our lives, pray that I would have wisdom in the way that I converse with others, that I spend my time with other people, the way that I build relationships, my interactions with others. That it would be based in wisdom. That I would have the best use of the time for the sake of the gospel. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Why do we need to be gracious? Why does our speech need to be seasoned with salt? Because if it's not, we won't build enough of a relationship to even know the questions they're asking. And if we don't know the questions that they are asking, we have no understanding as to how to faithfully and clearly and meaningfully communicate the gospel to someone else. That's why Paul exhorts brothers and sisters to do this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. We saw this just a few weeks ago in our series in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. It's at the end of that section with the spiritual armor. Verse 18, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. I am thankful that while Paul is in Athens waiting for these brothers, that he was alert. He wasn't passive. He didn't check out. 
I think Gerald made this statement the very first Sunday we began talking through Acts 17. We are never off mission. We don't clock in and clock out. Paul didn't clock in and clock out. He was alert. He was walking in the spirit. He was alert to the spiritual needs around him. He was alert to what God may have for him that may change his plans. He was alert. And here he's exhorting us to be alert to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains wherever and with whomever that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This sounds like the four P statement that we just walked through, doesn't it? And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. What is Paul saying? I want to proclaim the word in prayerful dependence on the spirit. And in perseverance, would you pray for me that I would do that no matter where I am? Paul's not praying that he would be sprung from prison while I'm here. Pray that a door may open and that I may with boldness proclaim the gospel to those who are around me. Let me ask you a question. What do we desire to see so much that we will fervently ask others to pray for it? What do we desire to see so much That we will fervently ask others to pray for it. Here's another statement about evangelism. Evangelism should be fueled by a desire to share the truth of the gospel with others in a meaningful way. In a meaningful way that enables a clear response. Paul preached Jesus And him crucified and resurrected in all three of these contexts. But it looked different in every context. He was able to proclaim it in a way that was meaningful to his audience while staying faithful to the message of the gospel. So here's a truth that we need to understand about the gospel. The gospel is both transcultural. A couple of big words here. Don't be afraid of them. Okay, the gospel is both transcultural and enculturated. The gospel is both transcultural and enculturated. This is going right to what Gerald just talked to talked to the children about this morning. Listen, let's break these terms down for just a moment. The gospel is transcultural. What does that mean? It means the gospel is true for all cultures. People do not have to conform to a particular culture in order to respond to the gospel. Okay? It is transcultural. The gospel is true for all cultures. In that vein, we must understand this, that the gospel takes root in every culture in a way that reflects the culture. This is the beauty of global missions, guys. When you travel and you go to other cultures and you see them worship, it doesn't look like the way that we worship. There's faithfulness both ways to God's word, but there are cultural attributes to both that just make it beautiful. Some of the most, some of the richest worship experiences I've ever had in my life was in a room where other people are praying aloud or singing aloud to God in a different language and understanding that God is big enough to receive it all. What a beautiful thing. The gospel is true for all cultures. It takes root in all cultures. But listen to this. The gospel critiques all cultures. Including ours. 
The gospel critiques all cultures. Listen, the gospel is normative for all peoples in all times and in all places. The gospel is transcultural. This is why we go on mission. This is why we don't say, hey, in order to be saved, you have to come here. This is why we go. This is why missionaries spend months learning about the culture that they are going to. Okay? It is transcultural. But we need to understand this as well. That the gospel is also enculturated. This is what that means. It is not, the gospel is not above culture or void of culture. The gospel is not acultural. Okay? It's not without culture. It is always enculturated. I want to say three things about this quickly. Listen, follow along with me. The gospel we proclaim is enculturated. It was given to us by God in history through cultures. When we read about the gospel and when we learn about the gospel from the Bible, we are confronted with all kinds of foreign things that are that are foreign to our culture. Do we not? Just this past Sunday night, we're walking through the I am statements of Jesus with the students. And I revisited a a, a familiar passage. Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Now, all of us will be like, yeah, I went to Sunday school. I know exactly what that means. Raise your hand if you come from a family of shepherds. I see no hands. That is a culture that's completely foreign to us. And listen, if you raised your hand and said, yes, I come from a family, it would still be foreign to you because they shepherded a lot differently back then than they do now. So what did I have to do in order to understand the gospel, uh, the gospel proclamation that Jesus was making about himself? I had to go back and do some cultural work. And you know what? Last week, I stumbled upon a couple of aspects of shepherding from Jesus's time that was new for me that helped me to see the gospel a little more clearly. The gospel is enculturated. It's always enculturated. It's enculturated in that culture. It's enculturated in our culture and every other culture. Okay? It is not a cultural. So this is why we need exegesis. Exegesis, once again, is pulling the meaning out of. We go to the Bible to pull the meaning out of. We have to go to all the cultures in the Bible and we have to understand something of those cultures so that we can faithfully pull the meaning of the gospel out of the Bible. That's why we need exegesis. So the gospel we proclaim is enculturated. Second, those to whom we share the gospel are enculturated. Those to whom we share the gospel are enculturated and they are enculturated differently than I am. In every scenario, all of our cultures differ somewhat Every person is deeply shaped by their culture. Communication, expression, worldview, organization and presentation of ideas, application. All of that is different. I remember one time I went to a uh, um, Trellis Navine conference. Gerald, you may remember this, JT. I think we all three went to this one. It was in uh, Raleigh. And Tony Payne, who is... One of the guys from Matthias Media was there uh, putting this on, and he is from Australia. And he came in and he told a funny story. He said, I need to watch my language because I did my first one of these last week in a different church. And, um, you know, stuff happened with my flight, and I just didn't sleep at all before I came in to do this conference. And he said, I rushed into the building, and, uh, you know, everybody could tell I was just disheveled. I was tired. My, my eyes were puffy. And he said, I stood up in front of everybody and said, sorry, guys, for the way that I look and the way that I'm acting today. I am wasted. And his American sponsor quickly ran up on stage and said, wait, 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 
In Australia, that means really tired. We are enculturated. We know that just across our county, you say things and it's foreign to somebody else. Right? Everyone is enculturated. This is once again why we need exegesis. We not only exegete the text, we're exegeting cultures. I need to draw the meaning out of your culture so I can understand how that culture has shaped you. So that I can communicate to you in a meaningful way. So the gospel we proclaim is encultured. Those to whom we share the gospel are encultured. Number three, we as gospel proclaimers are enculturated. We are not blank slates. But here's the truth. Especially here, we tend to believe that what seems best to us should then be the standard for everyone else in what they believe is best. This is the water in which we swim, guys. Most of us would say, I don't have a culture. Yes, we do. We just don't overtly see it. And here's the truth. All of us have cultural blind spots. We don't even understand all the different ways that culture has shaped us. So if we have a gospel that is enculturated, those to whom we share the gospel are enculturated, and we as gospel proclaimers are enculturated, in order to faithfully steward the gospel, we must contextualize the gospel. We must contextualize the gospel. I love how Tim Keller uh, how he defines contextualization. I love this. He says contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking. There's the operative phrase to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and formats they can comprehend And through appeals and arguments with force they can feel even if they reject them. That is a fantastic definition of contextualization. That even if you reject the gospel, you feel the love that compels me to bring the gospel to you. What a beautiful definition. But at the root of that is a desire to communicate the gospel not in a way that makes sense to me, but in a way that makes sense to you. And it may make sense to me in a different way than it makes sense to you. I've been on the foreign mission field before and had people translating for me in sermon midstream change what I was saying because they knew their culture better than I did and knew that what I just said would not land. Praise God for that. And then they would take me aside later and say, by the way, when you're talking here, people don't understand this. We must contextualize the gospel. Contextualization must take place on three levels. Do you feel like we've gotten into class now? It's okay. We can learn. Contextualization must always take place on three levels. And yes, these are in order. Number one, follow along your notes there. Number one, faithfully. Faithfully. We must remain faithful to the gospel message that has been revealed to us by God through his word. Contextualization is not changing the gospel to make it palatable to others. It is not. That's not what I mean by contextualization. What I do mean is that the gospel is durable enough for us to be able to speak it in meaningful ways to different cultures and retain its, its meaning. Okay? So we must remain faithful. Here's the truth. The essence of the message does not change. So here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Anytime we are contextualizing the gospel, we need to pay close attention that we are not veering away from the gospel. We must remain faithful. Second level of contextualization. 
meaningfully. Meaningfully. We should want to proclaim the gospel in a way that the hearer clearly understands it. Now, somebody may be sitting in here and saying, what's the big deal, right? If I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I just share about sin and salvation. What do you mean by those terms? When you're talking about sin, what are you talking about? You know how many biblical terms and phrases are used to describe sin? A different understanding of what sin is? How do I know which one of those are going to be meaningful to the person that I'm sharing with and and, and hit at the questions that they have from their life? That's contextualization. I want to share it in a meaningful way. You see, our desire is for them to understand it and respond to it. And all too often in our culture, we see people say, hey, I proclaim the culture. You've rejected it. So you're enemies of God. Guys, that's lazy. And it shows zero compassion for the world around us. We want people to hear the message faithfully proclaimed in a way that they can respond. Faithfully, meaningfully, here's level three, dialogically. Dialogically. We cannot simply assume that we know what the best way to convey the gospel in a meaningful way is. And in order for us to proclaim the gospel in a meaningful way, we must be willing to dialogue with someone in order to listen and understand how I can speak the gospel to them. The problem is for a long time we have we have um, we've kind of presented evangelism in a monologue way. Memorize this presentation and give it. Well, the presentation may or may not even hit on questions that they have. But it's through dialogue that I come to understand what the questions are in your life. How has culture shaped you? Then, how might I speak the word into your life in a meaningful way? In prayer, prayerful dependence on the Spirit and in perseverance. To see you move closer to Jesus. We can only be meaningful if we are first willing to listen. First willing to listen. And can I say this? We will not and cannot effectively listen to those we allow our culture to define for us as enemies. If our posture towards others is already one of an enemy, we're not going to listen. We're not going to care enough to want to convey the gospel in a meaningful way to them. We're almost finished. Two dangers that we need to be careful of. And these are real dangers for us. If we are going to contextualize the gospel well, and we are going to do that faithfully, meaningfully, and dialogically, then we need to be aware of these two dangers. Number one... When we over-adapt to a culture, we end up with syncretism. What is syncretism? That is when we lose the purity of the gospel by conflating it with something in the culture. We have brought the, the, the gospel together with a philosophy or a way of living in the culture to make that a part of the gospel. And when you do that, you lose the gospel. That's syncretism. Um, Sam Chan in his book describes it this way. He says, we don't ask people to give up what they should give up according to the gospel. And we don't ask them to do what they should according to the gospel. You enter into the culture, but don't challenge the culture. That's what happens when we over adapt. Here are some examples from our culture. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That is abandoning the gospel to shape the gospel to fit the culture. Another example would be the social gospel. That we're just all about the good works that we do and we abandon faith in Christ. Another 
another example would be the prosperity gospel. We marry the gospel to this American dream of fluency that we want, and we end up abandoning the gospel. That is over-adapting the gospel. A nationalistic gospel. All of those are examples of abandoning the gospel, of syncretism. So when we over-adapt to a culture, we end up with syncretism. What's the other side of that? When we under-adapt to a culture, we end up with legalism. Once again, Sam Chan says this, We think we're imposing gospel norms, but we're really actually imposing upon someone our cultural norms. Here we ask them to give up what they shouldn't have to give up, and we ask them to do what they shouldn't have to do. You challenge the culture, but don't enter the culture. We all understand what legalism is. In order to be a part of Christianity, you have to dress like me, look like me, worship like me, do these things like me. That's legalism. That's what happens when we under-adapt to the culture. So, brothers and sisters, both of these are dangers. We have the danger of over-adapting and mirroring the culture too much or under-adapting and enforcing our culture on others. And I want to say a quick word about this word that's become a buzzword in our culture, this word deconstruction. And I want us to caution, I want to caution us with this. So often we can allow what's going on around us to color our view of certain terms. And that's happening with this idea of deconstruction. What we are seeing in our culture as far as deconstruction goes is we are seeing people use tools from the, cu- from the culture to interpret the gospel and abandon the gospel. That's apostasy. Okay? We need to be careful that we don't become so hands-off to deconstruction that we don't understand our great need to constantly be about deconstruction. Lean in and listen to me. We need to constantly be evaluating ourselves to see if we are proclaiming and holding to and believing a pure gospel. What is the standard for that? God's Word. I am so very thankful for... for, I, I can point to... Times throughout the year, years where God has confronted me that something I believe is not biblical. That's deconstruction. That's me deconstructing my beliefs, my ideas to see, is this really gospel or is it Jason? And if it's Jason, it needs to die because I don't want to be legalistic. You you hear what I'm saying? Don't allow the culture to think for you. What I'm afraid of is that we're going to say no to deconstruction so much that we're never going to evaluate our understanding of the gospel. We can't do that. We always stand the danger of over-adapting or under-adapting, and we constantly need to be evaluating according to God's Word. God's Word is God-breathed and profitable for reproof and for doctrine. We need to constantly be measuring, and we do that also in community. Okay? Healthy deconstruction asks, what do I believe and why do I believe it? Because I want to be biblical. I want to be faithful to the gospel. If you have more questions about that, come talk to me. We'll talk about that, okay? So what does the right balance look like in contextualization? Well, I'm glad that you asked. And next week, Gerald is going to answer that by showing us a picture of the Apostle Paul. And how he proclaims the gospel in the midst of the Areopagus. How he is faithful, yet he is meaningful because he's willing to be dialogical. We'll see a picture of that next week. To close, I want to challenge us with this thought. The gospel is both a culture and a language. Okay? 
The gospel is not just concepts that we believe. The gospel shapes us. And it shapes the community that God is saving to himself. So it is a culture. The gospel is a culture that gospel people should embody. And as the work of the Spirit happens within me, the power of the gospel is conforming me to the image of Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. It is beautifully diverse because we are diverse in the way that God has created us to image him. And as the Spirit does this work within us, we enjoy this gospel community as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And it creates a new culture because together we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It comes with a whole new set of ethics that we can read about in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. This should be our ethic as God's people. And it works itself out within community. It is a culture that we should be shaped by. Okay? But also the gospel is a language That gospel people should become fluent in speaking. Now we begin to evaluate everything in the world around us through the lens of the gospel. And we're able to more and more be able to speak into every aspect of the culture by speaking the gospel into every aspect. And only as I learn the culture around me, only as I learn people around me, do I attain the ability through the spirit to be able to speak the gospel in a meaningful way into every single one of those aspects of culture. This is the picture of what gospel fluency should look like. And we see it perfectly in the incarnation of Jesus that Gerald pointed us to earlier. The word became flesh and he moved into our neighborhood. And here's the beauty of the gospel for us. It's when beautiful feet take the culture of the gospel to others who are not like us in our culture. That's the beauty of the incarnation. It's not us going, seeking to impose our own culture so that they might know Jesus. It is taking the gospel culture to the world around us so that they may taste and see that he is good. The Sunday that I was in Edmonton, I had the opportunity to worship in four different churches that day. It was a whirlwind day. I was worn out by the end of it. Say what? But y'all just I'm glad that's what's going to stick with you today. In the morning, I was able to preach at the Chinese student church. The, the English service was made up mostly of young people. Okay. It was interesting, though, in, in this church, three different congregations, I walked in and I saw all these older people that were there, um, older than students, we'll put it that way. Um, and they were very conservatively dressed, you know, dressed very well, you know, kind of to themselves, uh, you know, shuffling to their places. And then I walked into the student uh, service, which was taking place in the gym with chairs set out. They all got hoodies on and jeans. And uh, it was just a different cause, three different cultures that were going on there. They were spaced out in their seating, their masks were on. They were fairly non-expressive in their worship, although everyone participated. They were a little reserved in their interactions and dress. I noticed that when I went up to talk to someone, there was there was a reverent kind of space that was given. Right. It wasn't overly expressive, wasn't overly boisterous. And like I said, it was cross-cultural, even among themselves. From there, I went and met my ride who took me to a uh, Filipino church celebration. They were celebrating their four-year anniversary as a church plant. Well, in this place was a ton of joy and laughter. You could not tell where one family started and where, where it ended. Like, people were just everywhere around tables and all over the place, full of laughter, music going on, kids doing stuff over here, just utter chaos. 
And people were having the time of their life. They were incredibly hospitable. I was asked 12 times at least to please go back and get more food. Okay? After that, we went to an African church, an African service, where we saw incredible, incredibly expressive worship, dancing and singing, instruments, even in the congregation. People had instruments, playing instruments. We had seen a worship group from another African church um, uh, the day before at the conference. They got up and were dancing and singing, and they were trying to get us to dance and sing. It was, it was a nightmare, but it was so beautiful. It was very colorful dress and just boisterous, over the top. You know what I also noticed about this church was deep theological expression in everything. Like just the depth and the way that they talked and the way that they prayed. Vastly different cultures in one day. And I experienced incredible gospel fellowship. And in that day, I realized how much I have allowed my own culture to cause me to become comfortable. It wasn't just being around different cultures. And there is something to that. Man, before COVID, we were traveling a lot and I was experiencing that a lot. I missed that. So glad that we're going to have opportunities to begin to get back to that. But more than that, I sat at dinner That night with Desiree, who's from the Congo, he's working towards becoming a church planner. We had a two-hour conversation, guys. We didn't talk about sports once. We didn't talk about politics once. All we did was talk about the gospel. Two hours. We talked a little bit about each other's families. You know, tell me about your family. Tell me about. But even in that, like, how can I pray for your children? He asked me. I just met him. How can we pray for each other? And Desiree was opening up with me. I just met this brother. He's opening up with me about spiritual struggles in his own life. Like, I'm really struggling with this. Would you pray that I would believe this? How can I pray for you? He was asking me questions that were making me uncomfortable to answer. And I stopped at the end of that and I said, man, this shows me just how comfortable I've become in my own life. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. If we want to become gospel fluent, if we want to become gospel culture people, there's only one best way for that, and that is immersion. And that is the beauty of the church is that every time we get together should be a practice in gospel immersion. And instead, I'm afraid, at least for me, so many of my conversations that I have in and among the church can mirror those that I can have with lost people any day of the week. We will not grow to be gospel fluent people, number one, if we don't even see the need to be so. And number two, if we are not immersed in it. I'm coming back from Canada changed, man. There's some stuff that I've been dealing with, some stuff I'm praying about, some stuff I'm praying for you about, for me about, my family about. May we be people who immerse ourselves in the gospel so much 
that we can't help but carry its culture with us everywhere we go. And we can't help but proclaim it into every situation we come across. Father, I pray that that would be the truth. Oh God, do that work in us. God, help us not to get caught up in all the technical terms that we went through today. They're important. I believe it's something that we need to hear. I believe it's something that we need to know. Sometimes I think it's regrettable that the term seems so technical because we immediately want to just kind of, kind of check out of that. But God, help us to see, <coughs> Lord, that we are enculturated people that have been tasked with proclaiming an enculturated gospel to other enculturated people. And God, I pray that we would care about that. And Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be out of a sense of duty, but Father, it would be out of a sense of identity. Of this gospel work that's first taking place within me to rock my own world, to deconstruct my own life. To weed out the things that stand in the way of me just giving my life to Christ and following Him. The things that stand in the way of me dying to self. And experiencing the fullness of the gospel's work in my own life. Oh God, I pray that we would desire to see that happen. Help us to pursue it. God, help us to long for that kind of community right here in our church. Lord, the kind of community that just shapes us with hearts for the ends of the earth to proclaim the glory of God. Oh, Father, that we would compel each other towards that every time we sat down in a living room to have life group together. Every time we got together as a Sunday school class or a women's Bible study or a men's time together, Lord, that that would be the way that we would that we would pursue each other's hearts. Lord, help us to want to be immersed in this great gospel in a way that we would want to immerse the world in it too. God, do that work in our hearts today. Thank you for this picture that we've seen today from your word. God, help us to be people who are gospel fluent. Be with us now even as we sing this beautiful declaration of the gospel. God, even in these moments, would you grip our hearts with the truth and reality of who we are in Christ Lord, for anybody who's here this morning who has not experienced that reality, Father, I pray that they would see their need for Jesus and see through these beautiful lyrics all that He has done to reconcile us to Yourself. God, I pray that they would respond in faith today. God, do a work in our hearts as we proclaim these truths to You. And help us to be faithful to respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things today. Amen.